Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Trust that you all uh, had a nice uh, Thanksgiving holiday. It was nice not to have Sunday school for, for that week. I, I'm not going to lie. So <laughs> it's a good break for me, too. Um, we're going to pick back up here on uh, the church's impact on cultural Christianity. We are in our studies of the unsafe Christian, right? We've talked a lot about uh, different aspects of a cultural Christian, uh, doctrines they believe, some of the behaviors, and we've been in this kind of four-week part now talking about the church. How does the church impact cultural Christianity with church leaders like myself? And, and you all are included as well, being, you know, part of a church. We're, we're all, we all take part in this of whether or not we're fostering cultural Christianity or helping to combat it. So let me pray before we get started, and we'll jump right in. Uh, Father, Lord, we just thank you for Jesus. Um, that can sound redundant, repetitive in a church especially, but that is the truth. That's why we're here, is because of Christ. And um, just as our sermon this morning will be on his death, burial, and resurrection, this means so much. And it's because of this that we can gather this morning to just learn, to learn about the implications and to learn about this gospel that we are to herald, that we are to proclaim. And God, we know that the enemy is real. Satan is roaming around, seeking whom he may devour. And a part of that is twisting your word. It's removing people from your word, trying to get them to be as close to you as possible without fully knowing the truth and therefore not knowing you at all. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to understand even these truths about you. You would open our, our eyes to see you this morning. And God, I pray for us as a church to be bold when it comes to evangelizing cultural Christians. This is rampant in, in America, and it's not the gospel. It's not acceptable. And Lord, help us to just have a, a zeal a loving zeal to approach and to evangelize these folks with the true gospel as we were saved by. So God, give me what I need to, to teach this morning. I just pray for our conversation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Kevin. <laughs> there's notes here on the chair and there's notes up on the table over here too. All right, so uh, talking about the church's impact on cultural Christianity, we started every lesson saying the local church can be a what of cultural Christianity? An incubator, right, of cultural Christianity, or it could be a remedy for it. We want it to be a remedy, not an incubator. So this week we're going to look at the church's impact on cultural Christianity in regards to invitations, altar calls, and baptisms. We're going to take a look at this specific area here. Now, this is a hot topic Right, because it directly relates to salvation. Right? What do I mean by that? Well, in the previous weeks we've talked about you know holidays in a church, having Santa up on stage and blowing snow everywhere. Those things are silly. Um they can have a, a massive impact. But what we're talking about specifically this morning is literally telling somebody they're eternally saved. Right? 
Salvation, we know, is regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It's a big deal. Salvation in Christ is new life. It is a big event that takes place in one's life. So when we're talking about altar calls, invitations, raising hands, we're dealing with people's assurance that they are saved. So it's a big deal. And it's a sensitive topic for, for some, and it's highly debated for others. So if we think about modern evangelistic strategies... What I mean by that is just strategies churches are, are using in our day, especially here in America. Um, they're often directed and aimed and focused at people, getting them saved, making decisions. And that seems right away like, yeah, that's what we should be doing as Christians, right? We, it's the Great Commission. We go and we make disciples. But driving people towards a decision often then gets associated with the decision is over heaven or hell. Right, Jack, do you want to go to heaven or hell? Heaven. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> I don't want to go to hell. And when we should really start thinking about driving towards decisions, Russ, do you want to go to heaven or hell, by the way? <laughs> it's not a trick question. But depending on how you answer, we may need to talk later. So, um, But yeah, you know what I'm talking about here? So, Yes, our goal as Christians, we want people to choose Christ. We want people to make a decision to follow Christ. It's the best thing we can ever help you know, someone get towards. But we don't control, ultimately, what if they do or not. We know God does through their heart. But the way it's looked at with modern evangelistic strategies today is more of a decision. I'm going to propose a question to you, like I did to Russ and Jack. And I want you to make the right choice. And if you do, then I'm going to tell you you're saved. We're going we're gonna to rejoice, celebrate. We're going to dunk you in that water. And you're going to be a Christian. So why can this get messy? And by this, I mean pushing for decisions within a church. Bob, you look like you have a really good answer. Why does this get messy? Well, yes, that is true. <laughs> he said if you baptize a lot of people, the water gets messy. That's Bob. <laughs> and it, it's true. These people are forced to make a decision right away. I don't think about it. Okay, yeah. Janet? Yeah, absolutely. Children is a big one. We're going to get to that here next. Dave, yeah. I think, too, that people then look to that pastor or whoever led them in the prayer or gave them that decision as being Jesus. Mm. Like they have special spiritual power. Mm -hmm. If you do what they do, then you're in. Mm. That's a really good point, yeah. I've also seen that take place in larger churches where they, they had so much time spent on them 
by this person. And then once they made that decision, they kind of go serve and, and they didn't get that time with them anymore. And that really messed up the relationship and what you're saying, all their hope was in that person. Kevin, you had something, right? Yeah. Bob? Other than the water. They never see God coming. They never see their sin. They never really understand why they need to be saved. Yeah. It makes you wonder, too, if I asked you know, the question to children, do you want to go to heaven or hell? Do what well, I would love to be able to pry into each one's brain and, and, and see what they even think of those words. Like, what does heaven look like to them? What does hell look like to them? And that's surely going to be very different, right? Well, Dean opens up this chapter by talking about kids at VBS. And you got to remember, this is the South. This is the Bible Belt. So it's sort of a joke amongst pastors during summer in the VBS season that it's free babysitting for the parents. <laughs> so it's kind of this joke that parents come and they just dump their kids off and they go shopping and just go have a good time. And it's a week of just free babysitting, basically. But he talks about how, how wonderful it is to obviously have kids there and, and they get a chance to spread the gospel with the kids. So it's a good opportunity. But he claims that false conversions are kind of run of the mill during a VBS week. And I think I would agree with him. And, it, and again, it's not to say conversions can't happen in children. We're not saying that. We know they can. God can save anybody in his timing. But it's worth taking a deeper look at it. What's being taught in VBS? What's being said to these children? And what follow-up plans, more importantly, are in place, right? If a child gives his life to Christ, what does that follow-up look like? We know a lot of VBS are open to kids that don't even go to those churches. In fact, they're used for that for, for outreach programs too. So you have a child who is told they are saved um, because they said the prayer and they don't want to go to hell. Their parents don't go to the church. They never come back. They never go to church. But this child remembers this moment and will grow up. Hey, I remember this year, this time I, I gave my life to Christ. I'm a Christian. Team Jesus. Right. Summer camp's kind of the same thing. So he shares this, this heartbreaking story about um, a friend of his who was a minister um, who was in charge of VBS week at their church and said the week was full of Bible stories, you know, singing silly songs. They did a lot of crafts. It was a great, successful week. And typically on the last day of VBS, they um, invite the parents to come in and see all the songs that they sang and the Bible verses they memorized. And it's really a sweet time. Well, this minister was tasked to give an uh, invitation to the children where they had a chance to ask Jesus into their heart. And several kids, well, a few kids, I guess, kind of raised their hand, and they did that. And they were approached by the team leaders there. They talked to them. They got their information, and then they walked off stage. Well, then the band came up, and they played through their last final silly song. And... Uh, as they were playing their song, this minister was pulled aside by the lead pastor that was there. He was there that day, and he wasn't very happy. Uh, he, he spent great detail describing the look on his face, and he wasn't happy because he said there weren't enough kids that made decisions 
So I'm going to go back out there and redo it. And I don't know what redo means, <laughs> but when the song was over, this lead pastor then went back up on stage and said, do you want to go to heaven when you die? How many of you want to go to heaven when you die? I'm sure he said a couple other things there. And every child raised their hand, as you would hope they would, right? So they joyful, joyfully reported the number of decisions that were made uh, to the church that next Sunday. And everyone clapped and were excited. And in one week, the number of decisions that were added from this VBS doubled the amount of baptisms they had all year. Um, so when you look at that statistically, it just seems like, wow, we're, we, that was a great VBS, right? Highly successful. And this is like a yikes moment. I mean, this is, this is scary stuff. Can children genuinely be saved at VBS? Absolutely. But Dean and Sarah then asked a deeper question of, well, what does it mean, though, to actually come to Jesus? Right? Thoughts on this, this event, this story? Can any of you relate to any of this in your past? Well, you were in the South, right? So. <laughs> I went forward every summer. Every summer? So you've been Great. saved quite a few times. Oh, yeah. Dang. Oh, so you're good. You you were definitely good to go. Really safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kevin. <laughs> Well, okay, because you never did the action. I never did the action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you say something, Janet? Or are you stretching? It gets messy. <laughs> I, I was a part of this on the bad end when I started doing ministry when I was first saved at 21 uh, in the church I was at. I did youth ministry was kind of my jam. I was young um, and we did we did this a lot. Summer camps, especially summer camps got just crazy. And it's that, and it's and it's weird because it's known. Summer camps are known. Like everybody knows when your kids go, they're going to have a an amazing breakthrough experience. But then the joke is, is like now we we turned it into a problem that we can't figure out. Of well, why when kids get back from summer camp do they just lose all their faith? Like we got to figure this out. What's happening? And it's like we're we're skipping over what the actual problem is, you know. And 
yeah, I've had to repent a lot for some of the things I've told told kids just to try to get them, especially on the worship side. I mean, I could, I did worship at one of the youth camps, and I knew exactly what song to play, how long to play it, what to do to get these kids crying and get their hands raised, and I was a part of it. So it, it happens. And then this goes to our next point here around manipulation. So Dean is here, you know, he's saying – Large evangelistic events, surely conversions can happen and take place in these, in these things. Um, as a result of an altar call, even, Janet, to your point, true salvation can happen. I mean, conviction is conviction, right? The Lord is convicting you in that moment based on what that person said, and he has regenerated your heart, and you respond. That's, that's genuine. That's legitimate. But he, we also have to look at the reality that we're, when we're doing something, especially in mass form, then we're at risk of manipulating people through these means and these means i mean forcing a decision asking for a raise of hand asking you to come forward and if manipulation is involved it makes you wonder why on earth would someone want to manipulate somebody especially a child right into making a decision for christ thoughts on this why would someone want to manipulate a person into well, making a decision from my own personal experience in the past for me it was Whenever the people who tell me you're saved, first thing they want to do is you got to prove it to them. And it's like they need to qualify themselves by leading you to the Lord. Mm. It's like if they're saved, they have to lead you somebody to the Lord. If you don't lead anybody to the Lord, then you're not saved. And the first thing says, how many people have you led to the Lord? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's uh, that's a manipulation to me. Mm -hmm. I was talking that way, and that also led me to question who I was and whether or not I was really saved or just did it. And so I just got to the point where I said, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be like them. Yeah. Evangelism uh, is just as a whole is something that could, we could all be convicted right now that we don't evangelize enough, especially now as a pastor in a church. When we think of like GCF, like, how are we doing with evangelism? Anytime we talk about evangelism, we're going to probably feel like we're not doing enough, <laughs> right? Because it comes down to that. How many people have I, how many people has Dave Lundberg saved? You know, how many, how many gospel conversations have I had with people that got, got saved so that I can kind of, and I think about those things and, and they're not a healthy way of thinking, but it's there. And I hope, and I would say the most, the majority, when we're talking about churches here, I, I would hope that the majority of the motives are with good intention. They're just misplaced. I don't think people are intentionally, I mean, they could be, we could be crossing that line when it comes to numbers and, and big churches, right? And we'll get to that here in a bit. But Dean and Sarah suggest that there's two common reasons that manipulation happens, theological pragmatism and accolades, theological Pragmatism. Let's look at this first. What is it? Pragmatism is a philosophical approach that evaluates theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. 
Pragmatism is a philosophical approach that evaluates theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. That word success is very important when it comes to pragmatism because this means if you do something and it has the right outcome, the desired outcome that you wanted, then that thing is true, it's valid. Therefore, use it. Use it like crazy. But if it doesn't yield the expected results, and this would even count on saying if it no longer, maybe it did at one time, but if it no longer yields those results, then it's not valid and you should ditch it. A uh, life coach explains how pragmatism works in everyday life. By the way, pragmatism is very, it, it was coined by a philosopher. It's in the whole arena of philosophy and life coaches will use it a lot. And this is an interesting way to look at it because pragmatism is not necessarily a bad guy. I don't want to coin it as it's bad. I mean, there's some practical applications here in just life in general. But listen to what this life coach says about pragmatists. Pragmatists believe that the best way to determine the right course of action is by considering all possible outcomes and choosing the one with the most benefits. Pragmatism helps you become more flexible by adopting a mind that adjusts to changes and discarding old ways and beliefs if they don't work for you anymore. Pursuing practicality is what pragmatists care about instead of sticking to feelings and ideas that don't work anymore. So maybe this could be a useful approach to life, maybe, but is this ideology safe for ministry? Why don't you think so? Because you have a tendency toward move towards new age stuff. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And there's all these people out there teaching this new age stuff to make it easier so that more people will be willing to, to go towards it because it's, it's easier for them. Yeah. Yeah, if the core of pragmatism, when you read this, this is what this life coach is saying, it's really about change, right? It's, it's saying that that change should be happening constantly because things are going to no longer work out for you. Therefore, you need to pivot and move on to something else. And again, there's some, there's some good application there in, in some small things. But think about this in marriage. You know, pragmatism would say, well, it's not working out anymore. You know, if you're not receiving the joy you once did, and if you're not receiving, if you guys aren't as close as you once were, well, pragmatism would say, you need to change it up. Yeah, you need to switch it up. And I think this is risky in the church because obviously we have this Holy Bible that runs and operates everything within the church. And does that change? Yeah, it's the same. And that's why Christians are always getting blasted because we refuse to be open-minded to new cultural trends and things because we live by the word of God. So I think pragmatism in the Bible kind of combat each other in that sense. They go to war. But theological pragmatism comes into play when churches make decisions or change approaches based on how their congregations positively respond to specific methods or ideas. So pragmatism comes into the church in ways of Jeff tells Dave, I'm, I'm in Seattle, I want you to preach, but we, we want to make, you know, we want to, we're a church that, that, that don't broadcast how many decisions we make. So when you preach this weekend, I want you to do an altar call and write down how many decisions you make. Pragmatism would come in in that, in that regard of then I would research, well, what do some pastors do on this text to do an altar call? What's the best way to get decisions? I would do that. We would yield results and then we would evaluate. 
hey, this worked or this didn't work, right? So approaches based on how their congregation positively respond to methods or ideas. This could be as simple as uh, one big name pastor did this for a while and he really recommended that all pastors and communities do this, that the idea of a church, if, that the purpose of a church is to infiltrate and to, to help the community that they're in, right? To, to influence the community where the actual church building is, then we need to find out what they like. And so he really recommended that we, we mail flyers to every house. Um, we could do that right now. That would not be hard, right? You do a bunch of flyers, ask a survey, what kind of coffee do you like? What kind of music are you into? If you don't go to church, what would, what would kind of convince you to try out church? And um, he would do these surveys. They collected thousands of surveys, and then he would build his church based off of the majority of the responses. This is real-life stuff, and this is still happening today. That is pragmatism theological pragmatism. Um, we do this with books we read, right? Now, I'm not saying this as a bad thing. This is just, it is what it is. And there's good intention behind it. So you probably have heard a lot in my testimony when I was in the Navy and I wasn't saved. My parents had got saved um, later on as well when I was in the Navy. And naturally my mom and my dad realizing like, man, we, we missed this opportunity with our children. And they were very convicted about that. So my mom wanted to, wanted me to be saved. And so she sent me all these books. And she would ask her friends, you know, what's a good book for a you know, young adult in the military that hates God and da-da-da-da, oh, Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. So she would mail me that book and mail me this book and mail me that book. Um, that's pragmatism when we do that, right? We all get excited about the book we read. And then we think, man, so-and-so needs to read this book. Or, especially when it comes to salvation, man, if so-and-so reads this book, Case for Christ, man, it just proves the resurrection. It proves all these things. It's a story about this reporter who denied everything, and he was just completely turned around. Powerful book. And so we recommend it to people. All that is fine. We should be doing that, right? We should. You read a good book, recommend it to people. But where we kind of get off the tracks in is if we respect the result, that it works. And even with my story with my mom, those books worked. Um, later on. I couldn't throw them away because they were from my mom and I cherished them because I was out to sea and I missed them. So I didn't want to just throw them in the trash, but I mean, they sat in my locker for a year. And then when I was regenerated and I was hungry, I went through every single book and uh, they were used. So it's good, but we have to be careful that we're not expecting them to work because this is the area that God, this is God's business, not ours, right? Okay, where am I at here? Um, Everybody reach totally different ways because of their background circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I look at how with me, it was I went through a lot of emotions because of how I was raised and how people in church are kind of forced you to do things or pull you up to say different things. Mm -hmm. And then as far as they were concerned, this is who you are. But you knew different, but you had to live that life. And then it's like you know, going through a, a study with another pastor on, online, it opened up my eyes. And that's what reached me. I mean, it probably won't reach a lot of other people, but that's what reached me. Yeah. And so we're all different, depending on what, how God enables us at the time. Yep. And those are all good things, right? And, and this is. I'm going to get off track a 
little bit here, but this is really important what you're saying, and it's what I'm preaching on here this, this, this morning, is this is why the gospel's centric to salvation, right? It's the gospel. The Bible tells us it's the gospel. It's the power unto salvation. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, that, that is the core. All these other things are great. Like, we want to learn apologetics. Apologetics are great. We want to learn how to defend our faith. We want to learn how to argue well with the, the person who says that dinosaurs never existed or this happened or the age of the earth or the Bible isn't true because of this, right? Apologetics are a way to know what you believe in the Bible and how to really debate with people. But where it goes off tracks, so apologetics is good, but where it goes off tracks then is, is if the apologist thinks that they're going to convince somebody, they're going to win that debate because they're armed with all this Bible knowledge and they're going to win the debate, and then they're going to just collapse and say, you're right, I'm a follower of Jesus now. <laughs> it's not how it works. Yeah. I just think, I mean, the main concept of this is the, the theological pragmatism component of, in like, the, the, the faith is first thought and something else. The faith is first faith. Like, if it's worth it in that and of itself, but if you're making that belief first in faith, then rather than the work of God, it's, it's mm-hmm. using it rather than in the ear. Mm-hmm. Like worshiping the creator, not the creator. And mm-hmm. again, how often and quickly that line can become from like using something that is a gift from God, a grant of great means, and misplacing that faith and misplacing that worship. Um, and that's where this can be something can be so I guess like stark and clear of like, yep, we don't we're we're trying to use the means of our church and our style and all of that, but it does seem so evident, but then again, where you talk about, this isn't actually a bad thing, but how quickly we can turn to using that as, I'm placing my faith actually in the work of this book, yeah. the work of God, so I think that's, I mean, we we look at, oh, we're not doing that, thank goodness we're not doing that, but I think we can so quickly mm-hmm. do that in our own hearts, mm-hmm. of just Absolutely. Very well said. And we're going to talk about that here towards the end, too. We, this is unavoidable. Numbers, counting, how many people are at GCF this week, how many people are at GCF next week. We have to engage with that. So we're, we're, we're there. We have to walk that line, but we have to be very, very, very careful in all of our hearts by, by doing that. Because we can't just go run and hide and not engage in it at all. So we have to be good stewards of it um, because it can go off the tracks really quick. Uh, one author writes us a good quote here. Most of evangelism today is obsessed with getting someone to make a decision. The apostles, however, were obsessed with making disciples. Focusing youth events, retreats, and programs on persuading people to make a decision disarms the gospel, distorts numbers, and diminishes the significance of discipleship. I, this, I think this quote really hits the nail on the head. This is what we're talking about because we've brought this up so many other lessons, rites of passage, right? This is the sweet spot in cultural Christians is rites of passage. I've done this. I've done this. I was baptized in this place. I signed this card. I walked the aisle. I had a time and date. I can prove it to you. I'm a Christian. And one thing we have to remember too is making disciples takes time, right? I mean, think about our own walk and faith. We're still working it out. How can you really fully believe that if 
Kevin comes in, non-believer, makes a decision today, and then it's all said and done. Boom, now he's a home group leader. I'm going to plug him in my church next week, go work in the nursery. In fact, teach Sunday school. I mean, th these things are happening. And this, this, this takes years. Discipleship is a very, very long process that involves walking with somebody, replicating, right? Replicating Jesus, who you are as a Christian, and somebody else. And that takes a very, very long time. So theological pragmatism is, is ramped up in churches. It, it, it's been ramping up in the last couple decades. Uh, and it's turned this message of what I call repent and believe, right? The, go uh, the gospel message of repent and believe, shifting to repeat and receive. So let's, let's take a look at these two and repent. I can't talk and write at the same time. Sorry. Repeat. I can write a book on it. It'd be a coloring book. So. Okay, so let's contrast these two things. What are some elements of repent and believe? What are some elements that you think of when you think of the words repeat and receive? Conviction, yeah, and you can't repent without conviction. What else? Perseverance, yeah. That's what you taught on. It's okay. It's hard to write when people are looking at you. You have to have a lot of grace. I before E except after C. Thank you. What's that? On the right is more of an action where it's on you to have. Yeah. I like that. Action. Mm, costly, can we say that too? Easy. Could be costly. Varying degrees. Oh, that's good. Good job, Darcy. Man centric. Jesus. And the other things that come to mind, this is really good stuff. I didn't have any expectations of words here, so I was curious what would come out of this. <laughs> And you said pride? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. 
I like where you're going. I'm going to help you because that's a good, you're going, you're going a good direction there. No, this is good. Because what you're saying is, this is a confidence in yourself. Yeah. And this is confidence in something else, which we know what, right? Something else, the alien righteousness. Mm. Like no next steps, too. Excellent. Yeah, see, this is helpful to look at, right? Because it really, I mean, this, we're not trying to just, oh, let's make this as ridiculous as possible. But when you, when you look at the differences of these two, I mean, it's huge. And you would look at it and think, like, why would... Why would we, I ever want to do this to someone? There's, this is sugar, right? There's no nutrients here. This is just, it's going to do nothing. Yeah, Janet. Well, I read um, Purpose Driven Life, which is the one and two, what everybody was talking about. And he, he used the word Yeshua Paul Yeah, and that goes into what the gospel has turned into a lot is just that, you know, God has a good plan for your life. He, he loves you. And, you know, he, he'll make your life great. If you don't have Jesus, you need him. They'll say you need Jesus, but not for the reasons the Bible says you need Jesus. You just need him. And so that gives someone the ability to be like, yeah, I am great. I guess I could sprinkle a little. What do I have to do? Oh, just, you know. Do good works, associate with this church, and come when you can. Be a good person, and you're good. So, yeah, this is a really helpful word picture to look at here. Um, so it's imperative to remember that the key to evangelism, evangelism is to point people to Christ, not heaven. The key to evangelism, evangelism is to point people to Christ, not heaven. Right? Asking someone if they want to go to heaven is not the gospel. Asking someone if they want to repeat a scripted prayer is not the gospel. So unless someone's an atheist, there's a high probability, as we talked about, right, that they're, gonna, they're not going to want to go to hell. They'll say, yeah, no, I want to go to heaven. And that just, the conversation goes nowhere after that. It's just done. Oh, okay, well, I guess our discussion's over. Great, you want to go to heaven. Well, how do I get there? Well, say this prayer with me. Boom, done. So let's talk about an alternative. If gunning for decisions through means like the sinner's prayer, um, asking people where they want to go when they die, what else could be done instead? Let's, let's use that VBS example, right? Of the lead pastor not being happy with how many decisions and went back up on stage. What else, what's the alternative? 
Not looking for one right answer here, just curious what you, I was thinking about this. Well, what would I have done instead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the same thing. Like, depending on how old these kids are, you could you could create the gospel story in a way that can be digestible to children, right? And make sure that you're going through that. God's holiness, right? We talk about God a lot to these children. Who God is, who they are. to come back and learn more about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of a one-time event, okay. Right. Yeah. And then that's on the leadership too, right? Again, that feeling of, man, we have them for a week. It's the last day. It's the big day. This is our chance to do it. Versus just taking your time and trusting in the Lord in that. And just, I know I would feel a lot more confident if I had a week of VBS knowing those kids heard the gospel. I don't know what God's going to do with them after, but they, they heard the gospel. Um, Kelly and I are, I are, like, are like that with um, Phoenix and Mahaji, the two kids that we have a relationship with that we help watch. I, I want nothing more than to them to be saved. But I'm not every week with Mahaji like, do you want to go to heaven or hell? Great, you're a Christian. Like, no, we're, we're, I just want them to be in front of the gospel so that I know those seeds are there. They're, they're being sprinkled and planted and the rest is up to God and I can pray. Yeah, yeah, kids are kids can easily be manipulated. We all know that. I mean, if they believe a fat man with a sack of toys can squeeze down a chimney to all the girls and boys in one night, and they really believe that, then that shows how easy he can convince them of other things. Uh, and Sarah writes, gospel presentations must point people to God's holiness, the consequences of sin, the forgiveness needed, and reconciliation that is only possible for those who believe the gospel by faith. The greatest human need is not heaven with grandma, but forgiveness. We need to be saved from God, by God, to a relationship with God that is expressed in the worship of Jesus Christ. If a prayer is a means to understand that, and the reality of heaven is a part of what is grasped in understanding the gospel promises of our Lord, fantastic. But apart from that, a ticket to heaven by way of a scripted prayer is not the gospel. So let's talk about accolades, the second one. Many church leaders today have their focus on the three B's. You guys know what that is, the three B's? It's kind of funny. Any guesses? Butts, bucks, and buildings. Those are the three B's to the the church strategy of our day here in America. Butts, bucks, and buildings. And just for clarity's sake, butts are butts and seats. <laughs> don't, want, don't want you guys walk away with any misunderstanding there. Not cigarette butts. Not cigarette butts either. Yeah. Butts, bucks, and seat, uh, and uh, buildings. Let's get people in seats. Let's grow this baby. Let's raise some money. And let's make really big, awesome buildings. He suggests that boasting in numbers seems to be all the rage in the modern church culture of our time, and I think I would agree with him. Two pastors get together often, what they'll ask is, how many baptisms did you have last year, right? And now we're, we're talking numbers. So, and Sarah kind of says how much numbers become a part of the conversation and, and just what we were talking about, Marissa, right? 
numbers can be dangerous. Again, we have to engage with numbers. We have to look at them um, to make wise decisions, but they can be very, very dangerous and we can get drunk off of numbers very easily. Um, let's see. Yeah, when it comes to numbers too, again, if you just went and just buried your head in the sand and said, I don't care about how many people came or whatever, well, then you're not really, we can't serve you guys well either, right? We don't know how much communion we need. We don't know all these things, how many chairs we need. Do we need to start, you know, having people go sit out into the fellowship hall because we're getting full? So, so we need to look at those things. And yeah, it's exciting to hear that 10 people gave their life to Christ versus, versus one. We should celebrate those things. Those are great things. But the biggest thing with numbers, and, and I think that bleeds into the bigger issue, is that how does God operate in the scriptures? This, this is something I always think about that fascinates me. God always does the least likely, right? The whole story of redemption is the least likely. The whole gospel is the least likely. Why would God come to earth and die in place of creatures who are who hate him? That's incredible, right? <laughs> Why? The, God stepped out of heaven, came down, took our place, died when we're just mere creatures made from dirt who don't want anything to do with them anyway. Yeah. Think about his birth. Where was he born? There's, there's all these places where you think, well, if he's a king, why he wouldn't be born in a dirty stable? He'd be born in this glorious, amazing temple. So all these events throughout scripture just point to the least likely because why do you think that is? Again, I know there's not one single answer here. I'm not speaking for God, but I think there is, there's something at the root of why God works in these ways that we would look at as humility. humility yeah. Yeah. Glory. That's what I was thinking of. Chuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it cuts that out that, of the equation of you have to be this to, to, to get him. Um, and Kevin, what you're saying, when it removes, it removes humans from the equation, basically, right? God gets all the glory. It magnifies his grace. That's what grace is, right? I mean, grace is, is getting something you don't deserve. So when we start looking at numbers, budgets, butts and seats, I think that's what can start getting us in a dangerous place of taking credit for something that God clearly is doing and that he wants all the glory for. Judges, chapter 7, I thought was an interesting kind of way to look at this. So I put the scripture here on your notes. I'm going to read through it. Judges 7, 1 through 8. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Hera. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. 
And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you are there, for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and the Midianites into your hand, and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So what is going on here? What's so crazy about this, especially when we think of pragmatism? God wouldn't let him know that it wasn't in the actions of man, but it was what he was doing. And how do you do that? How do you let him know that? Dwindling the numbers down, say you don't need all these to be successful. You just need me. Yeah. I mean, how many people were there? 22,000 of the people returned initially. Then he had an army of 10,000. I mean, when you're going to go into battle, wouldn't you want as many people as possible? I mean, that's, that's common sense. Who in their right mind would be like, we have them available, but we don't need them. Let's just send them home. And then not only does he do that once, <laughs> he, he leaves them with 10,000 people, which even then it was probably like, what? 22,000 are going home, now we have 10,000, and then they resulted in 300 people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All throughout scriptures, this is how God operates. And, and I guess that's the point I'm just really trying to drive in this morning when it comes to altar calls and invitations and getting decisions and tallying up all the baptisms you have on your wall salvation is a work of God and how easy it is for us as humans to want to steal a little bit of that credit and that glory and start looking at me, starting to trust in our chariots and horses, right? The strength of our people, the strength of our money, the strength of our building, how good of a preacher we have that we look to that as man, God is so proud of us. Success, right? Yeah. I think we do have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Like Jack was saying, God uses all kinds of means. Like the, after the day of Pentecost, and Peter gave a sermon mm -hmm. that says 3,000 souls were added to them that day. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that looked like. I don't know what the discipleship after that looked like. But I think we have to not limit God. Absolutely. I would I would 100% agree with you. It's just what we're saying. What are we presenting? What was Peter presenting to these 3,000 people? Right? It's the content. And that's what I'm saying. If we have 5,000 people here and I have a chance to share the gospel, that's excellent. And I want to make sure that they hear every aspect of the gospel that they can. Uh, reminds me of... Uh, 
who was it? It was, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, when you listen to his story, when he was finally at the, the big chapel that he was, got super popular at for preaching, you know, people were lined outside the front door. They couldn't get any more people in. Uh, it was during, during World War II in England when bombings would be happening. And I remember he said he preached in the morning and he preached in the evening. And the morning message, he was going to do the gospel in two parts. Morning message was, man, sin, like you guys all suck, right? <laughs> You're terrible, da-da-da-da. And then evening, he was going to then come in with, with Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection. Well, he's, he says um, after the morning service, bombings happened, and there was actually quite a few people who died and never had a chance to come to that evening service. And that greatly convicted him of saying, like, Whenever I present the gospel message, it will always be together, one fell swoop. So I always think that's a really cool story. And so, yeah, anytime, whether it's 5,000 people, whether it's one person that you're having coffee with, it's the gospel, that's the content of the message. And, and invitations are not bad. Invite them to church. Invite them to a Bible study. Hey, you still have questions? We're running out of time. Why don't you come to my house and let's open up Romans and kind of walk through it. So when Sarah says, we can't be ignorant of the fact that false assurance exists and that it has eternal consequences. This should, this should pull us away from hurried numbers and toward individual conscious patience with those in our churches. Thinking back to Matthew 7, 21 through 23, in my original conversation with my neighbor, Matt, I can't help but wonder if, didn't I ask Jesus into my heart, will be one of the pleas of the religious when they stand before the Lord. We can't know for certain, but we do know that authentic heart change is the result of regeneration, evidenced by transformation through gospel belief. So he opened up the very first chapter of the book. We read through Matthew 7, right? Lord, Lord, then you're going to come to me saying, didn't I do all these things in your name? And I just thought that was a really good point of it's just another thing that someone could use and say if not discipled, if not walk through, making sure that there's even a gospel understanding there, right? Here's my card, Lord. Here's the date that I signed it. I said the prayer. Why am I not getting in? Yeah. Um, Is that that follow through? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I remember when I was um, just a newer Christian, and, and I went to a funeral, and I was going to a church that believed in the one thing, all faith, and they hung all their faith on, you know, that one sentence. And I went to this funeral, and um, and they were talking about the time that this person had made a decision, you know, 
young, and but I knew this person, and he never had any, I mean, he was town drunk, he was, you know, mm-hmm. never did anything, and never went to church except for on Mother's Day for his wife, and um, and that's what made me really start questioning that, and, and start looking at um, reformed theology and, and all that, and, and it just made me realize that I, I can't hang my faith on a date. Mm-hmm. You know, it's even though that yes, I I I still take visitations. I've, I've seen people save with them too, but it's that follow up and making sure that we're spending the time to disciple them and not not just let them on a date. Yeah, that's a really good point, Lori. And it's yeah, I think of it. It it could be like getting a tattoo, right? Like, man, this is permanent. This will be on my skin forever, and you're. 22, and you were just at the bar with your friends, <laughs> and you're like, man, this is a really good idea. And you get your tattoo, and it's done. It's a done deal, right? It was that decision, and now it's permanently there, and you're like, okay, well, there it is. And uh, But yeah, discipleship, and again, just praise God that, that when I was introduced to Reformed Theology as well, it, it answered so many questions I had, but the biggest thing that gave me was assurance that I could pray. And it made more sense of why I'm praying, right? One of my biggest questions for those of Armenian thought and their theology that God can't, you know, he doesn't interject when it comes to salvation. That's really just their free will choice. My, my problem that is, is, why do you pray for them? What are you praying for? God can't do anything according to your theology. What's he going to do? But we have a Lord who can do it, right? We have a Lord who can penetrate hearts. He can rip out old, dead, hard hearts and put in new life. That's what he does. So it completely changed the way I prayed for people and even for my children to this day. You know, Lord, give them new life because you can and I can't. I can surround them with the gospel and I can keep spreading these seeds, but only you can make them grow. So praise God for that. Um, message this morning is going to be very similar. It's all gospel, you know, death and burial, resurrection, so it'll be good. But let's pray here real quick. Father, thank you for the gospel message. Thank you for the hope it gives us. And Lord, we do just pray for wisdom, for, I just, even talking about this just feels a little uncomfortable because it's, don't want to be looked at as Pharisees, that, that we're better than other people or that we have it all figured out and we don't. But Lord, I just pray your gospel is magnified and and it brings us back to the truth and the reality that we will always, always want to rob just a little bit of glory from you. No matter where we are in faith, we always want to be proud of what we did with our hands and how true is that in ministry too. So Lord, help us in this area to look to you as the one who has the power and help us to be faithful in just how we pray and how we come alongside brothers and sisters who are walking this out and how we come alongside those who aren't regenerate and to preach your gospel boldly and to know that that is where the power is. Uh, In Christ's name we pray. Amen.